Marini's Media. Totally football show. Today, Mikel Antonio does for, Norwich are done for, Kolasinac what for, and signs a life at Cherries Villa and Watford. As we finally discover what Bournemouth's goal music sounds like. Plus, all the Verrods are stage and the danger on set pieces too, as Moo gets a North London derby as he likes it. All that and more in this totally football show in association with Paddy Power. Since I was that high, if you asked me mother, she'd tell you, I mean, I'd chop sticks, would pinch people's cabbages and sell them around the front door. <laughs> to play for England, once you've had a taste for it, it is the only place to play. Especially when you've got a brother in there already and you've got a chance of joining. I saw Jeff running away with the ball and it's on, score the goal, and then you know it's all over. I, I remember going to my knees and saying, thank God for that. I mean, I can talk, you know that for a start. But can I manage? <laughs> people tend to forget that we've got people who are really good players in the English Football League. And they forget about the Republic. We just reminded them a little bit. We're there. We're in the last eight for the first time in my history, and it's magic. And good luck to the people back home. Great. Hope they have a good party. The Pope was on the third bit of his blessing, and he was looking right at me, and he had his <laughs> hand in the air like that. And as I woke up, I thought he was waving at me, so I stood up and went back. <laughs> I hope that the people of Ireland have got... I know that they've got the memories. I know they cherish them, and I know that they've enjoyed the days that when they've done something that they've never done before. I just cried. I'd been there for 10 years, and it was time for me to leave. And, uh, and I did. Jack Charlton, minor son who conquered England, Ireland, and the world, who passed away on Friday. It is Monday, the 13th of July, and joining us today on the Totally Football Show, we have Michael Cox, Matt Davis-Adams, and Daniel Storey. Hello to you all. Hello, Hi, James. Hello. And we've just seen a Sunday, I think it's fair to say, rich in drama. Spurs beating Arsenal, Villa and Bournemouth shaking up the bottom of the table, and Matt Davis-Adams. And elsewhere in there, Wolves <laughs> with a 3-0 win over Everton. Where would you all like to start? Probably have to start on the south coast, don't we? All right, then. The relegation battle, a weekend that saw four of the bottom five with victories and the other one consigned to the championship. Norwich, who were beaten 4-0 by essentially Mikel Antonio. But elsewhere, drama, uh, West Ham, of course, winning that game. Uh, Watford, with a come-from-behind victory, their second come-from-behind win in the space of one week at home to Newcastle. And then Villa on Sunday beating Crystal Palace, but possibly the most unexpected result in the second half of the entire season, seeing Bournemouth triumphing 4-1 at home to Leicester and again coming from behind. Uh, Matt, you're our Bournemouth specialist. What on earth happened at the Vitality? I'm still trying to process it. It's, it's not that long after full time. I'm not sure I've ever seen two such disparate halves of football as that one. First half, Bournemouth one touch in the opposition penalty area. Second half, four goals. Unless my eyes deceive me, Dominic Solanke got a couple of them too. So, you know, whether they played last week's pod in the dressing room or not, I'm not sure. But if, if that's what inspired them, then, then please for them. But, you know, 
they're not out of it by by any means. They're not out of relegation trouble. They played really well in the second half here. But what on earth has happened to Leicester? I mean, they were dreadful. You know, obviously, the sending off doesn't help. But but you look at the circumstances behind that. Completely needless. And the first goal they concede is is a. a calamitous error and then from there it just unravels and gets worse and, and well done to Bournemouth for for taking advantage of those errors and, and Manchester City aside midweek they, their fixtures look reasonably favourable for the running so yeah who knows I could get egg on my face come two weekends time cherry cherry pie all, mm, all over your quite. all over your face as you say nothing about the first half suggested that that was incoming not least the fact that they lost Nathan Aki their best player in the course of the opening 45 minutes Daniel what, what, what do you think happened well I mean it was entirely self-inflicted by Leicester but that even notwithstanding Bournemouth still showed some fight that let's face it has been long overdue against Newcastle recently looked aside more certain for relegation than Norwich and have managed to turn it around. It's a shame that they play City away in midweek because I think they probably lose that and might well lose it heavily, which kind of takes the wind out of their sails. It's it's a shame for them that the fixtures are in that order. Uh, but yeah, they've, at least they've got a chance. Leicester uh, were 14 points clear of fifth place uh, back at uh, just after Christmas. If Man United win Monday night, they will be out of the, the top four. W- what has happened? I mean, beyond this game here, what has happened between... Brennan Rodgers and his side? I think two, well, three specific things in each area of the pitch. Firstly, the central defensive partnership between Evans and Soinku looks alarmingly lost, the understanding they had. You know, you're seeing huge gaps between them. They're getting dragged out of position, making individual errors. The, the injury to Wilfred Ndidi in central midfield clearly didn't help, although he's been back for a while now. And they've been struggling to service Jamie Vardy effectively. Now, I know he scored I think three in his last two, but for a long time, he wasn't really even getting chances, uh, never mind scoring goals. So, yeah, that all goes together. And Brendan Rodgers prides himself on his ability to motivate players, but the problem he has always had in his career is that when things start to trail off, he struggles to address that. And I could understand if Leicester fans are thinking, well, in a performance like that, in a game that meant as much as this, if that's the reaction to adversity, kind of where does the team go from here? Uh, anything else we can say about Bournemouth on this remarkable night? I hope it's the start of something for, for Dominic Solanke. I really do, because I watched him score 40 or 41 goals for, for the Chelsea youth team in, in 14-15. And he was, if not more highly rated than, than say, Tammy Abraham. And tonight was the night I saw somebody tweet that he finally got more Premier League goals than he has England caps. And he's become a kind of figure of fun because of the, the transfer fee that took him to, to Bournemouth and the fact that this was his 39th game in the Premier League for them and, and the first time he scored. But it, there's definitely a talented football in there and, and hopefully this means that you know he can kick on and, and start to to show the quality that he showed in that in that Chelsea youth team if not in his time at Liverpool or, or Bournemouth up until Sunday night. Well as you say will it make any difference for Bournemouth uh, come the end of the season and same goes for Villa after their 2-0 win over Crystal Palace. Watford uh, currently and West Ham both three points ahead of Bournemouth and four clear of Aston Villa. The remaining fixtures See West Ham and Watford face each other uh, this Friday. So if they draw their potentially, I'm not sure how much that could maybe help then. West Ham then have to face Man United before hosting Aston Villa in what could be an absolutely crucial final day meeting. Watford, meanwhile, have the trip to West Ham, then Man City, uh, then Arsenal. 
Bournemouth have Man City, Saints and Everton away and Villa have Everton, Arsenal and West Ham. Is this going to make a difference, Michael? Um, I'd still bat Bournemouth and Villa to go down. Um, but they do have games where I think they can get points. Not all the matches, obviously, but both Bournemouth and Villa have Everton coming up and Everton looks absolutely dreadful today. Um, and the noises coming out of the club afterwards suggest that there might be something seriously wrong there. So, look, there's points to play for, but I'd, I'd still fancy the the three in the relegation zone to be the, the three relegated at the end of the campaign, as I think a, a lot of us suspected um, at the restart. Villa feel like the big losers from this weekend because they really struggled to get past Palace, had had a bit of luck with the, the Sacco goal that was ruled out by VAR. But this after Watford and West Ham had won on Saturday and then for Bournemouth to go and win later on in the day, it means that Villa are, are in exactly the same position that they were at the start of the weekend. So you wonder what that will do for, for their morale ahead of their remaining games. Right. A couple of notes on that Villa Palace game. Partizan Palace asking, are the Eagles sleepwalking into a Bournemouth-Watford-style scenario next season? Uh, and the other one relates to Wilfred Zaha and the appalling abuse that he received pre-game on Instagram, which you, you've probably seen. West Midlands police say they've now made an arrest over that. It's a 12-year-old boy from Solihull, which is uh, yeah, a very depressing thought. Crystal Palace's prospects... I mean, they are sleepwalking towards the end of the season, they, although they've been safe for a long time. They they seem to do this. They seem to have periods in which they begin looking up the table and we all say what a magnificent job Roy Hodgson has done. And at times he really has on a pretty low budget. Uh, and then they lose five games in a row and we wonder about them going down either the, that, the current season or the next one. I guess the question is how much stomach Hodgson has for the fight for long term because he's, you know, he's the oldest manager in the country at the moment and he can't have can't want to say for too many years so their next managerial decision is absolutely massive because they've made some very bad calls down the years albeit ones they've sorted out pretty quickly so I think it all hinges on that okay uh, Matt you were saying that Villa feel like the the big losers they are four points still from safety however if Watford were to beat West Ham this coming Friday then it would be still very much in Villa's hands because they face West Ham in that final game of the season. Not sure what the prospects are between West Ham and Watford at the end of this week. Michael, you saw uh, the Hammers, though, at Carrow Road on, on Saturday. And I imagine you were quite impressed with Mikel Antonio. Yeah, I mean, he's a player who I think everyone would say that they like in terms of the way that he plays the game. Um, he has got a bit of everything on his day. Um but he doesn't have too many days like this. He was he was just involved in everything. Obviously scored four goals, but probably could have had a couple more. Was involved in a lot of uh, link-up play with Jared Bowen as well. Um, so yeah, really impressive from him individually. And, and West Ham obviously needed that because they haven't had many goals from up front this season, despite a promising start by Sebastian Allaire. But yeah, obviously the story was really about Norwich. I mean, I've, I've admired them a lot this season in the way that they've gone about playing their football and I think their long-term plan is pretty good and I think they'll be back in the Premier League and probably for longer than uh, a single season. But you do have to ask a, a couple of questions about the way that they've performed, particularly since the restart. I think they've they've really looked lacking in any kind of belief and I don't really turn to that kind of thing in terms of analysing football. But, I mean, the way they played this game was pretty pitiful I thought and just in terms of you know the, the way that they've played football they just can't defend I mean there was so many basic defensive areas for Antonio's four goals so uh, yeah a lot to admire about them in the first half of the season but in the end they're going to be relegated probably by about 15 points which is a, a big margin 
and the manager Daniel Farr after the final whistle saying, all due respect to my players, but it was men v boys out there. He also said they at the start of the season he felt they had a 5% chance of staying up. It almost felt like he was signing his own P45 in that post-match interview. I just wondered if he he maybe felt that he'd been let down by the board. You know, we spoke that they, they signed essentially a reserve right back for, for a transfer fee in the summer and that was it. And it, it was pointed out that Norwich had nine of their starting 11 on Saturday who started the last game in the championship for them last season. Well, Sheffield United had eight of the same metric and, and they seem to have done all right. So I don't think Farker's immune from criticism either, although obviously it would have helped if they'd furnished him with a couple of players. Hmm. Uh, they do at least look like the best placed in terms of budget to survive the drop down uh, to the championship without too many problems. As for West Ham, how much does it change the underlying problems at the club? Let's ask Daniel Story, who wrote, you can't roll a pebble in glue and glitter and then try and sell me a diamond. Uh, <laughs> Daniel, this was your big breakdown of, of, of what is a West Ham pre, pre-game. Have you in any way changed your thoughts about the Hammers? No, not really. I mean, they they did the same in Moyes' first game. They beat Bournemouth 4-0 uh, in his first game. And I don't think Moyes is, is the problem. I think he's a representation of it. The fact that they boldly announced they were moving in a different direction and didn't see him as the future to then appoint him again 18 months later doesn't say a great deal for the club's long-termism or their, uh, or their imagination, really, I don't think. They, they, they constantly talk at West Ham about trying to replicate this RB Leipzig, RB Salzburg model of being the club that brings players through and develops youth talent. And I suppose that reflects back to their kind of self-starred academy of football uh, historical reputation, but it just doesn't stand up at all. Uh, they buy generally by ageing players or expensive imports. And there are already rumours that they're looking at, for example, Phil Jones and Jesse Lingard in the summer. And if you were going to ask at which clubs those two players would probably end up at, you'd probably guess... West Ham or Everton, who at the moment feel like two of the worst-run clubs in the league. Um, I, ju- I just think it comes down to the owner and, and the chief executive who... Um, I mean, West Ham fans already know this. I'm preaching to converted, but there's just such a stunning demand to say the right thing and to shout loudly and to make bold promises and never back them up with action. Well, any Hammers fans who fancy a really depressing read can find... Uh, your article on the the Eyes website, and it begins with that wonderful stat, one of my favourites, about uh, Dimitri Payet and chances created, to wit, since August 2015, Dimitri Payet has created 28 more chances than any other West Ham player, and he was sold to Marseille in January 2017. Remarkable. Before we leave this section, uh, we need to have a quick word about uh, Watford and Troy Deeney's cojones. Yeah, I watched this game and, and yeah, Troy Deeney takes a good penalty. He should have had a couple of other goals, by the way, in this match as he as he admitted afterwards. But Watford have, have had these two come from behind wins. They hadn't had one all season before they beat Norwich and Newcastle. But but just like Villa against Crystal Palace on Sunday, this is exactly the kind of match that, that Watford would have wanted. You know, a, a beach-bound Newcastle team at home is a game that you should absolutely be winning if you're desperate for points to to stay up and wasn't particularly impressed with Watford I've got to say but they just about managed to to get the job done but but they're another team you know we mentioned Crystal Palace earlier Watford needs some some serious surgery in the in the brief summer break I think because they've got too many players who are who are not up to Premier League standard I think you know you look through the 
the spine of the team. The central defenders are okay. Dini is a really important figure for them. They've got other good players like Decore and Capu, but but other than that, a lot of players like Holly Bass seems to have gone backwards this year. I'm not sure Ben Foster's quite the great goalkeeper that he seems to be made out to be, and there's there's plenty of work to do on that squad to, to make sure that they're not in this kind of trouble next season if they do stay up, which looks likely. Okay. Big games to come midweek then. As we say, Watford and West Ham face each other. Bournemouth taking on Man City and Villa up against Everton. After this, let's get on to the North London derby. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. In by Son. Oh, and the header's into the net! And Spurs have taken the lead. And Toby Alderweireld is the man celebrating into the final 10 minutes of the game. Spurs Arsenal, everybody. Uh, A game rich in drama. Arsenal with Lacazette. Then a lack of any idea how to defend a a 1-0 lead. Uh, Son equalising almost immediately for Spurs. And Toby Alderweireld about 10 minutes from time. Earning Jose Mourinho yet another win against Arsenal. He's never lost a home game against the Gunners in his career. Was this one him or, or was it Arsenal? Yeah, I think it was a fairly classic Mourinho win, wasn't it? Spurs didn't have many periods where they were dominating possession, but they sat back and looked relatively solid defensively and then scored from a set piece and from a pretty bad Arsenal mistake. So I think you can chalk that down to classic Mourinho. I think Arsenal will be really disappointed because I think there was one point midway through the second half where they looked really in control of the game. Um, I think it was last weekend I mentioned that peculiarly for an Arsenal side, they don't really have anyone in an attacking midfield zone to create chances. And I think that was particularly obvious here. For all their dominance, they didn't really force the issue. I think maybe Arteta could have been a bit bolder, a bit more positive with his substitutions. I thought Saka, who eventually came on for Pepe, probably could have been introduced down the left to give an extra attacking threat against Serge Aurier, who, as always, was looking pretty ropey defensively. So, yeah, it's a reminder for Arsenal there's there's lots of areas they need to improve on. Um, Kolasinac has looked pretty good, actually, so far as the left-sided centre-back until this game when it really caught up with Arsenal and he was really poor in the first half. Mustafi had one of those... Classic Mustafi games where for an hour you thought, oh, Mustafi's playing well. And then he suddenly managed to make multiple errors within this, the same move at some points. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a funny game. I didn't think it was a particularly good quality game. It was kind of end to end and yet quite sluggish at the same time. can't remember last time I saw a game where there were so many yellows for tactical fouls. It felt like that was the main feature of the game. Um, so, yeah, it's a peculiar North London derby, I would say. But, but a big step forward for, for Spurs. You know, at least in terms of the the win, the fact they move above Arsenal, but also uh, nine shots on target compared to the nil that famously they had against Bournemouth on, on Thursday night. Did Jose swap things around? Did he introduce some changes? Is there are there glimpses of a new tomorrow for them in this? Well, I mean, he played a different system. He used almost a four four two with Son up with Harry Kane, which. Pochettino did a couple of times earlier in the season to good effect. I remember a win against Crystal Palace, 4-0, I think, where that was the system. Um, yeah, I mean, they did create chances, often from from longer kind of passes in behind Arsenal's defence, who looked a little bit too wide at times. I mean, I, I wouldn't particularly change my view on Spurs based upon this game. I thought there was still questions in both fullback zones. Didn't think the midfield worked particularly well. Um, but Son, I mean, Son was the lively one with his pace and his intelligent movement. 
I think you've always got a chance on the break. But yeah, I'm not sure I come away thinking too much more about either side after that one, to be honest. So is the is the deeper issue here that for all Spurs get a victory, neither of these sides look anything like being Champions League quality in terms of numbers or even performance? Yeah, I mean, these North London derbies sometimes they become a bigger issue when the sides don't have anything else to play for. I mean, a few years ago, the North London derby was big because both sides were going for the title, but now they're battling over eighth and ninth place. They're behind Wolves and Sheffield United in the table. So, yeah, again, regardless of which side had had won this, they're collectively at their lowest point for, well, well over a decade. Well, over two decades, I think it's fair to say. So, yeah, not not a particularly memorable game, I didn't think. I think Spurs have got a kind of similar issue to to Arsenal, albeit with a very different type of manager. In that, I thought the what the kind of other than the tactical fouls, the kind of defining aspect of the game was both Danny Ceballos and Giovanni Lo Celso having to do an incredible amount of running with the ball and sometimes having to beat two or three players just to create a chance. And if that didn't work, the ball was just shuttled to a fullback. I think more likely Tierney in Arsenal's case and Aurier in Spurs' case to, to put a cross into the box. So there just looks to be a lack of, um, almost like a lack of a middleman in between midfield and attack. I'm not saying that either will necessarily play a number 10 because I don't think that's probably the system that works right either. But there just looks to be an Ericsson hole with Spurs and a Meza Ozil hole or a peak Meza Ozil hole with Arsenal that it's difficult to see anyone in the club that can fill that other than a fairly expensive summer signing. Wow, OK. Well, a uh, bit of a downer then in terms of our reaction to Spurs' North London derby triumph. So uh, for some more positive vibes, let's dial up the Athletic Spurs correspondent, Charlie Eccleshare. you just come fresh from a kind of internet forum with Spurs fans post-derby. Uh, how much has this lifted the mood? Yeah, I think it has. I mean... It was pretty bleak after Thursday night and that 0-0 draw at Bournemouth. Uh, I don't think anyone thinks that, you know, all of a sudden they're a team transformed. But yeah, I mean, look, if you can't enjoy a come-from-behind win against your loathed local rivals, then, you know, what's the point? So yeah, de- definitely uh, a happier camp than it has been pretty much since the since the restart, I'd say. Right. I remember you being quite optimistic when we spoke to you back when the Premier League was getting <laughs> yeah. back underway because players were back from injury and all that. And since then, things haven't really gone according to plan. You mentioned the Bournemouth game and the famous stats regarding that. The, the Loris and Son fracas, the whole Ndombele uh, ongoing situation. And even results like this, I mean, it's the kind of thing that Mourinho did at Man United as well, win the big games or get a result in the big games and then... You'd have all the same issues in the other fixtures which which you'd be expecting something from. So where do you think we stand now? Where do you think Spurs stand as they build towards next season? Well, yeah, that's a really interesting one is the fact that they've they've actually been better a lot of the time against, you know, the the supposed better sides. I mean, they beat City earlier in the season 2-0. They drew with United, which, given what United have done since, looks like a a pretty decent result and obviously won today. Uh, The the problem they have is against teams that sit in um, and try and frustrate them because with Christian Eriksen gone, Lo Celso playing a bit deeper, they don't really have someone particularly adept at unlocking defences, but they are decent at sitting deep and springing teams on the counter, kind of like they did at times today. So... I think, yeah, looking ahead to next season, they need to find a way of 
playing against teams that come and sit deep against them, which, to be honest, is the majority of teams because uh, especially when Tottenham are at home, that is what most teams will do against them. So, yeah, that's the uh, the, the big priority, really. Uh, but at least it's good to see that Mourinho's muscle memory for, for this sort of win is still there. Right. Are the fans who I think were beginning to feel increasingly uncomfortable with having him long-term as their manager, are they... Are they changing their mind now again about that? I think it's a bit too soon. Um, you know, Mourinho is a strange one because so many fans had, you know, preconceived ideas about where it was going to go under him. So he probably hasn't been given the time that most new managers would get. I mean, it's easy to remember he came in November when Spurs were a bit of a mess. Um, and most managers, I think, would be given the grace of, you know, at least until they've had a full preseason and. Uh, time to work with the players. I know they had the lockdown period, but not quite the same thing. But obviously with Mourinho, there's just so much baggage there. Um, You know, beating Arsenal will help, but I think it will take a lot more than this to really convince uh, a lot of Spurs fans, especially since today was, uh, you know, won largely by sitting deep in a low block and being quite direct, which, you know, it's great it won the game, but I don't think that's necessarily how most Spurs fans want them to be playing kind of long term. Right. Newcastle away on Wednesday. What's going to happen there? Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's kind of uh, as big a test in many respects because this is the kind of game they've struggled with. I don't think Newcastle... I mean, obviously, they they don't really have too much to play for, but I don't think they're going to be kind of enterprising and swashbuckling. They'll probably sit deep and ask Tottenham to break them down. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was a you know not a hugely exciting affair. I, I do think Spurs should have enough to grind that out but as you pointed out I was optimistic at the start of the restart and I thought they'd beat Bournemouth so um but I you know I have to have to be right eventually stop clock and all that right well a point gained away to Bournemouth is now looking like a particularly good result actually. well yeah true Charlie. yeah nice one Charlie thank you so much for joining us this evening we'll, we'll catch up with you soon pleasure speak soon Charlie Eccleshare, Tottenham correspondent for The Athletic, and you can hear him in a North London derby special of the View from the Lane podcast, which should be out with you right about now, in fact, due out on Monday morning. Listener, later on this morning, we should get the results of Man City's appeal of their two seasons Champions League ban. City, in the meantime, made mathematically sure of a top four finish this season by doing Brighton 5-0 on Saturday with a hat-trick from Raheem Sterling, Liverpool, uh, meanwhile, dropping points at home for the first time this campaign in a 1-1 with Burnley. Uh, Leicester, by the way, in January 2019, the last team to leave Anfield with a point. Uh, Jurgen Klopp saying post that game, in some moments it felt like Liverpool versus Nick Pope. Nick Pope, eight saves. And a remarkable Burnley as well. I mean, beyond their remarkable keeper. We were talking just last week of the straightened circumstances in which Sean Dyche is operating under, and, and, and this game was no exception, but they do what no one else has done. Yeah, they do, and they, it was interesting, I thought, after the game to see Klopp pretty animated with the referee about decisions and visibly irked, of course, partly by the fact that, that Liverpool haven't won every home game this season, but I do wonder, without trying to read too much into it, whether he's a little bit concerned about not necessarily Liverpool's form, although that's obviously dipped slightly, but they have looked a different team in 2020 than than 2019 uh, in the Premier League. They haven't. It, it is as if teams have um, not found a way to counteract everything and not counteract the, the magic moments that 
that attack is capable of creating but find a way to kind of stop the system at least uh, and to force Liverpool to rely on those magic moments and the the reality is they didn't create enough of those on Saturday um, not for this season clearly but certainly for next season because the one thing about winning the league very early is that it inevitably shifts the focus to next season. So if the form does and the performances do tail off, it makes everyone think, well, what's going to happen in, in September onwards? And Liverpool players must be thinking exactly the same thing. Still, to play for this season for Liverpool is the chance to equal the best home record for a Premier League season and the chance to break Man City's top division points record of 100. Uh, they can also equal the... European record of 102 set by Juve uh, six years ago. Of course, um, Andy Robertson's header was pretty remarkable. Andrew Lang says, after Robertson's sumptuous noggin nod, what are the podders' favourite headers? I see you, Van Persie, and raise you, Jared Borghetti, against Italy in 2002. What you got, Matt? Um, maybe not favourite header of all time, but it gives me an excuse to talk about Jay Rodriguez, which I wanted to hear. Okay. He scored a, a really nice header at, at West Ham last week. Um, a really cute, deft flick that kissed the crossbar in its way, and you always get bonus points aesthetically for that. But yeah, I just wanted to to give some love to Rodriguez, a, a player who, you know, he looked as though he'd go to the 2014 World Cup with England, got a really bad injury, hardly kicked a ball for two seasons after that, was in the Championship last year, bought as a backup to Wooden Barnes this year, and he's got eight Premier League goals and really looks to have resurrected his career. So he's not somebody who gets a, a lot of praise when, you, when you're looking at Burnley players. It tends to be the keeper and defenders, but I think he's done really well. And yeah, that header at West Ham was very nice. Anyone else do a d- double take when Matt said he was bought as a backup for Wooden Barnes? <laughs> Very good. Yeah, he, he scores in this game as well. He he has had one or two off-field um, issues, shall we say. But uh, certainly um, nice to see him realising some of that potential on the field. Did you want to discuss fam- favourite headers of all time or shall we just crack on? I have to mention Henrik Larsson's for Sweden in, uh, I guess, Euro 2004 uh, against Bulgaria. Uh, It's a wonderful diving header. Of course, Van Persie in the World Cup and uh, pretty much Andy Carroll's entire back catalogue and Chicharito with the back of his head. All all great. And Man City, Michael, running up yet another mighty scoreline, this time against Brighton. Yeah, Brighton may be not entirely safe when you look at the results of the teams behind them. It feels like since they uh, got a win to seemingly seal their survival, they've almost gone 100% Potter and and started to really play out into the hands of Liverpool and Man City, who are probably the two best pressing sides in the league and have really played themselves into trouble. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're on 36 points now. We're at Bournemouth. 31, Villa 30, three games to go. I mean, I had Brighton down as as definitely safe, but it's not quite over yet. I thought I'd never see you again. I missed how you made me feel, the excitement you brought me, but I never stopped loving you. Did you just say something, mate? Oh, just looking at the Premier League fixtures like... Absence makes the heart grow fonder, so it's never been a better time to be a football fan. Celebrate with the Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. It covers all games on all markets, and if one leg folds, you get a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, minimum odds of 1 to 5 on for each leg. T's and C's apply, 18 plus, 
You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Race for the Champions League places. We still don't know if it's top four or top five. Should know a little bit later on Monday morning. In any case, Chelsea's hopes of a Champions League spot took a bit of a knock away at Bramwell Lane. A 3-0 defeat uh, to the newly sharpened Blades. Uh, Leicester, we've mentioned already, losing 4-1 as well. And uh, Wolves moving themselves back into the mix, potentially, with a 3-0 win over Everton while we wait for Man United's clash Monday night with Saints. Let's uh, start this little section with events at Bramall Lane, then Sheffield United, Chelsea. Michael Fred Ryan says, please, could you talk about how good the Blades were rather than how bad Chelsea were in this match? Matt, can you do that? Yeah, with pleasure. It will certainly um, be safer for me to do that. So, yeah, Sheffield United were absolutely fantastic. I mean, it was kind of... From literally from the very first whistle, they 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 forced a corner within about fifteen seconds of the game, and there it almost feels like you're damning them with faint praise when you say their intensity was really good and they're exceptionally well organised because they've also got technically very good footballers in their team as well. But it was that that organisation and spirit which help them wipe the floor with Chelsea and you've got to say that that's what they did you know they just looked much better drilled in every area of the pitch much better organized and much hungrier to get the win which is a worry from a Chelsea perspective but yeah Sheffield United you know as I said alluded to earlier still with the bulk of the squad players who they were playing with in the championship last season or in the case of Ollie McBurney who was playing in the championship last season absolutely no right in terms of conventional wisdom to be having the kind of season that they have and particularly given that they wobbled after the restart you kind of felt that they were heading down Um, but they've managed to pick it back up again you know beating Spurs and then beating Chelsea beating Wolves three teams all with higher aspirations than Sheffield United would have had at the start of the season. They are absolutely exceptional. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how they do next season, particularly if they end up in the in the Europa League. But but yeah, they're, the, they're one of the stories of the season. If Liverpool hadn't won the league this season, it, it would be all about Sheffield United. That ability to bounce back from the, the little rut they've been in immediately post-restart as well says everything about Chris Wilder and his kind of man management and his motivation. It can look a bit brash it can look a bit direct at times and it can look a bit foolish when they lose games I think um but or you know you cannot doubt the way he manages to assemble a group of players who who as Matt rightly says have no right to be where they are they had that rut and yet they've still taken as many points as Liverpool in the last eight league games so it shows the high standards by which we're judging a promoted team that we were all worried about them after failing to win for three games. That That's normally the standard for promoted clubs. And in the space of a very long year, um, they've altered those preconceptions. Yeah, it was nice to see uh, David McGoldrick get a couple of goals as well, because obviously they're his first of the campaign, but he's been so pivotal to the way that they play. You know, their, their attacking play is all about overloads down the flanks, and he's really intelligent in the way he facilitates those. I mean, him and McBurney got the three goals between them, but I thought actually probably the key part of their approach was those two, uh, their discipline without the ball. They, they dropped back and kept them really compact and just denied Chelsea's defenders uh, the possibility of playing into Jorginho, who was really peripheral. And, you know, if Chelsea are spending long periods on the ball as, as they were, but not involving Jorginho, then something's gone wrong in their build-up play. So, yeah, both with and without the ball, they were exceptional. And, uh, I mean... I think we really have to start talking about Chris Wilder's job as maybe one of the most impressive we've seen in the Premier League era, never just this season. I mean, with all due respect to this side, 
there aren't many of those players who were kind of pushing for a transfer out of the championship. This is a, I think it's a championship squad with no disrespect to the, the players who've had a really good season. But, you know, you look at Norwich and Villa and Bournemouth and there's players there who are really highly rated and sought after by the big clubs. Sheffield United, you don't, you don't really have that. And yet they're outplaying really, really good sides. They're ahead of Tottenham and Arsenal in the table. And it would be brilliant if they qualified for Europe for the first time in their history, not just because it would be great for them, but because I just love to see them against some of the European giants in terms of the, the tactical battle. So, yeah, I can't get enough of uh, Sheffield United. I think they've been a brilliant story. Very nice. Uh, let's talk about Chelsea's defending or not then, eh, Matt? Uh, here's Badger who says Lampard has the same central defenders as Conte and Sarri, but has conceded many more goals. Is it the system, the players, or a combination of both? Colin Miller says Lampard's Chelsea is a high-end version of Lampard's derby. They're a cohesive attacking unit with an admirable admirable emphasis on youth and proactive tactics, but hopeless at defending set pieces and counter-attacks. Does this suggest that there's no... I mean, he's new in this job, but that essentially... There's no upward curve, particularly. I don't know about that. That seems a li- that might be a little bit hasty to say that, but it's certainly true to say that this is not just a Chelsea problem. This is becoming a Frank Lampard problem. Um, I think the best thing probably for Chelsea would be if Dean Smith left Aston Villa at the end of the season and he gave John Terry a ring and asked him to to step down from an assistant coach job and become a defensive coach because they they need someone in there. They need a coach in there who is very adept at the kind of nitty-gritty of management. To my mind, Lampard seems to be... He's very good in front of the media. He's very set in that. He's learnt to do that as a player and a pundit, and he can do that. He's clearly very good with the young players, and he makes them feel wanted. But the defensive deficiencies... They've actually got lucky this season, Chelsea, I think. There's been so many times when they haven't been fully punished. You know, Take Crystal Palace last week. They're lucky to win that game because of their deficiencies, and there doesn't seem a an ability from one week to the next to say, right, this is what we've worked on this week on the training ground. It's hard to spot that. And that doesn't look great, I don't think. Yeah, and they have they have definitely been been lucky in other aspects as well because Leicester lost on Sunday against Bournemouth, just like Wolves lost against Arsenal after Chelsea lost against West Ham. So they, they do tend to get the rub of the green there. I mean, on the defensive thing, the, the set-piece issue has, has been one that's there all season and, and that's completely evident. And it is a very similar defence to the ones that, that Sarri and Conte had, albeit Conte had and used Gary Cahill, who, as I've said before, I'm sure Frank Lampard would have liked to retain. He also had a fit Tony Rudiger and he's looked half the player he was last season. Um, since he came back and and of that back five that started that game I think only only the fullbacks really would be worth retaining potentially for next season and one of them was was playing on the wrong side so it's the centre of defence and and obviously the goalkeeper which is the big issue for Chelsea and I've seen a lot of people kind of saying well they got their transfer priorities wrong by signing Ziyech and, and Werner rather than focusing on defence but I don't think that's how transfers work those players became available so Chelsea signed them when they became available it doesn't mean that they're not looking for for central defenders which I'm sure is is even more an urgent priority than it was before Saturday's game it's worth pointing out that they're third in the league I mean they haven't been out of the third. top four since October yeah <laughs> not, I mean they might badly. not they might not be third by Tuesday morning after Manchester United have played, but, you know, I don't know where everyone else had Chelsea in their pre-season predictions, but I had them seventh. You know, they had a transfer ban, they lost Hazard. Um, they haven't done badly. So, I mean, I, I, I'm still to be convinced by Frank Lampard, but, I mean, the, the league position's 
as good as could be expected. They weren't going to finish ahead of Liverpool and City. So, yeah, I, I, I'd be inclined to, to trust the direction of travel for Lampard. OK, uh, let's just finish off this section with Arthur Pendragon, who points out that since Chelsea changed their shirt sponsor, they've either scored or conceded three goals <laughs> in every match. <laughs> it's true. 3-2 defeat to West Ham. They beat Watford 3-0. 3-2 was their win at Crystal Palace, and they lose 3-0 here. Right. Oh, we haven't mentioned Wolves yet, so we'll do that and have a look forward to Monday night's Man United-Southampton next. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Wolverhampton Wanderers, three points behind fifth place Man United, only four behind Leicester, free-falling Leicester in fourth, and fresh themselves from a 3-0 win over Everton. Uh, You also mentioned, Michael, the noises coming out of Everton earlier on, which I I meant to ask you about. So do tell us now, what, what noises were these exactly? Well, Seamus Coleman did an interview after the game where he's quite critical with the rest of the squad and said, was basically hinting there was a kind of mentality problem and said maybe we're not as good as we think we are. And just for a you know a senior player and someone who's can't really think of him being that outspoken in that way before, just hinted at maybe it's there's something deeper at Everton than just who the manager is. You know, they've they've had a lot of managers in recent years with very different styles, um, and sooner or later they've all kind of come a cropper and. Uh, it's just not entirely sure the direction Everton are going in in terms of the on-pitch style of football, to be honest. So, yeah, it just sounded a bit a bit worrying, really. Right. A key moment, that sensational repart- um, well recovery and then pass, repass, uh, from Ruben Neves for the third Wolves goal. Oof. I think what Nuno has finally done, which he was clearly loath to do for a while, is is rotate his team. It took a few bad results it took a slump in form for him to do it but some of their best players recently have been Leander Dendonka who's been mainly used as a substitute Daniel Podence played against Everton and was probably the best player before being substituted so it's I think that's the key that they're clearly going to be tired they've played a I saw a tweet saying they're the only club to win in two different Julys in the same season it's been a heck of a long season for Wolves so they were always going to have to make those changes. I'm glad he's done it to get that boost before the end of the season because Wolves deserve European football again. And, and they've actually embraced the Europa League as well, which perhaps some clubs who, below them who might qualify wouldn't do in the same way. If it does go to fifth for the Champions League, who would you have your money on? Leicester and their four-point margin over Nuno Spirito Santo side or Wolves? Looks at fixtures. Uh, yeah, looks at fixtures, but... The one thing we should say is that Chelsea play Wolves on the final day. So that's kind of the big thing. If Chelsea have already qualified by then, Wolves will fancy themselves. But otherwise, that could be a final day shootout, which would be perfect. Right. And at the same time, Man United will be playing Leicester. All right, then. Uh, Let's talk about Man United and Monday night's clash with Saints. A chance for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side to sweep into the top three. Saints, though... The very same side that a week ago we were discussing having just beaten Manchester City. What are the chances of them doing a Mancunian double? Let's hear from Carl Anker. Carl, you're the Athletic Southampton correspondent, but also host of the Athletics Talk of the Devils podcast. Wow, you're, you're uniquely well placed to preview uh, Monday night's game for us. I hope so. 
God, it's a uh, yeah, one of heart versus head at the moment. I think one of the interesting things from both sides was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's admission that Southampton run the most out of all Premier League clubs at the moment, and he didn't want his Man United team to be outworked when they beat Manchester City. Ralph Hassel was talking about how the team collectively ran 132 kilometers, which right. is uh, that sounds like a lot. It's one of those things. Running statistics are quite hard to get hold of, so very rarely. Are they freely available? So it very often takes a manager to admit how far his team had run. And it's only always, look how good we are at running. Mm. So the fact that Solskjaer said it about a team other than his own was a big admission that, you know, Raf Hasselt was plucky Saints. Right. Well, of course, United are on, are on a good run at the moment, particularly at home, four victories in a row at Old Trafford, an aggregate score of 13 goals to two, and everything seems to have fallen into place. Are there any concerns ahead of Saints' visit? Their away record is is top five, if not top six, uh, and their project restart record is fifth place as well. So Southampton as a team, because they you know they press so high up the pitch, and so much of their game is dependent on creating turnovers or basically forcing the the sitting midfielders or the centre backs to make mistakes. Southampton have always been better playing away from home or playing against the big sides that allow so much space on the transition. And the thing is, with Manchester United in such free-flowing form, Hassel will most likely go, well, gentlemen, you beat Manchester City by doing this. Mm. You could probably do this again to Manchester United. So I think yeah. the plan will once again be disrupt the passing lanes between the centre-backs and the full-backs. And, uh, you know, even though Paul Pogba and Bruno is a winning combination at the moment, we know Paul Pogba is not the most diligent defender. So he can be got at if you can get to him before he, he does two or three touches on the ball. Carl, Southampton's away stats against big sides, against big six teams, are actually pretty dreadful. Only one of their last 23 such visits has actually resulted in a Saints victory. But you feel that that's part of the, the revolution that Hasenhutl is working at Saints? I very much think so. I think very much... Well, the, the one victory he had, um, so the one in, the, in that 23, I believe, was the boxing name victory over Chelsea. It was. Which uh, I watched that game with Rafa, sat next to me. Mm. And uh, it took about a good 15 minutes before we both realised what was going on. So some have this thing when they particularly play a big side where your brain is so inclined to the big team doing well that you can watch these games and go, this game is low quality. And then maybe after 15 minutes, you realise this game is low quality because of the way Southampton are disrupting the big team and disrupting what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and you know, oh wait, it's not the game. You know, it's not that Manchester United are playing badly. It's that Southampton are forcing the issue and, and forcing these mistakes. And that's that's a good Southampton performance. Southampton very much are um, the way I like to describe it is they try and beat you up by throwing you an object to catch, and then when you're so distracted by catching that, they bop you on the nose. It's a good tactic, isn't it, Carl? So far, I think we've heard more from your head than your heart. So let's <laughs> let's speak to El Corazon a little bit. This is huge for United. From where they were. They are now poised to break in with a victory in this game to the top four. Yeah, very much so. And I think very much the the intention from Solskjaer uh, and from Frank Lampard and from Brendan Rodgers is very much fifth place is not good enough. You have to get for the fourth spot because um, the question over Manchester City not being allowed in Europe it is now, I mean, that, oh, that went from being written in pen to being written in pencil, shall we say. Um, Solskjaer very much wants them to be in fourth because I think... I mean, third is not even out of the question now when the team is yeah. clicking the way it is. Absolutely. And the final day of the season, they take on Leicester City. So that could be interesting in all kinds of ways. All right, looking forward then to Monday night's clash at Old Trafford. And good luck with your kind of internal civil war, Carl. 
All I know is my heart says maybe. Carl Anker, wearer of many hats for The Athletic. Are you looking forward to this one, Michael? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Southampton's been good in recent weeks and with the confidence of the City win, I think they'll go there and give it a good game and Manchester United have been more entertaining than they've been for a very long time. Uh, so yeah, I think this could be a really good game. I think the the, the interesting question for, for Solskjaer is how and if he, he rotates the team. Solskjaer said after the Villa game that he couldn't drop Mason Greenwood while he's scoring goals but at some point you feel like he is going to have to rotate slightly Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba and Rashford and Martial and Greenwood can't surely start every game in this running or maybe he thinks they can and that confidence is all powerful but at some point he's going to have to make changes I think and the one thing you'd say now about Manchester United is the players that aren't in that team Daniel James for example or Odeon Igalo they now feel like such a step down from the players who have put them in this position and they're playing with such a unit, that attacking system, that it'll be interesting to see how anyone else fits in from the start to, to make it work. Well, big decisions then ahead. Monday night, anyway, they take on Saints. Tuesday sees Chelsea uh, up against the newly relegated Norwich. Uh, the Blues have a spectacular record against the Canaries, unbeaten in their last 16 meetings in all competitions. And, of course, a fixture best remembered for that Zola goal. Eh, Matt? Mm, yes, delightful. Wednesday then sees Bournemouth taking on Man City, Burnley Wolves, Newcastle Spurs and Arsenal against Liverpool. Liverpool haven't lost to Arsenal since Jurgen Klopp took charge of that club. An exciting looking fixture, that one, Michael. Well, I think over the last maybe seven or eight years, this has generally been the most exciting game in the Premier League, Liverpool against Arsenal. Or maybe Arsenal-Tottenham, actually, but that one wasn't that good today. So let's hope it's a good one in midweek. But, um, yeah, I, I must say, I, I, traditionally that's a big fixture, but I think I'm more excited about some of the games with a bit more meaning in terms of what the result means to to the teams. I mean, the relegation zone, which I had declared over at midday today, is now very much on, I would say. So, um, yeah, I'll be keeping an eye on those sides. Very good. Well, we'll have uh, more tweets from you and other bits as well, including who's probably coming up from the championship in a second or two. First off, though, Lee Price with Ben Green. Thank you very much, Jim. By what a time to be alive, listeners. What a time to speak to Lee Price from Paddy Power. All about the odds. Lee, let's kick off, please, with the Champions League draw that was made last week. Give us some numbers here, please. Hmm. Man City, the favourites, which, as you've discussed, could have added significance depending on when you hear this. Uh, they're 11 to 4 to win the Champions League, despite a tough route to the final, tough enough to make their conspiracy claims almost believable. Hey, I said almost. Buying a second favourite is a 10 to 3, and they'll be either rusty or rested, while PSG have an easier route to the final, so a 9 to 2 third favourites. Barca are 8 to 1, Atletico 9 to 1, Juve as long as 16 to 1. I'm very much not the booby prize when it comes to Europe. Europa League, what's going to happen here? Yeah, we're expecting the Manchester double. United priced at 2-1 to one favourites. There is some competition here, though. Inter have signed just about every player ever, and they're 5-1 to one second favourites, with Leverkusen 6-1, to one, and Wolves looking long and therefore value at 13-2. to two. Quick obligatory mention for Europa League specialist Sevilla. They're 8-1 to one to win it, as they have done 100 times before. They do have to get past Roma first, of course. And finally, Lee, Man United versus Southampton coming up Monday night. Hopefully listeners who are that way inclined can still put some bets on. How about Danny Ings opening the scoring here? 
Well, he's drifted in the betting for the golden boot, but to be fair to him, that's more to do with what Vardy, Salah and Aubameyang have been up to. Ings is now 10-1 to 1 to finish the season as a top scorer, and a similar price actually, 17-2, to 2, to open the scoring here against United. You can get him at 5-2 to 2 to score any time in the game, which has to be value given his current scoring streak. There might not be much to sing about for Southampton though, they're 17-2 to 2 to win this one. United bang in form, 1-4 to 4 to get the win. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Buff Hamster says, with the controversy in Syria and the EPL this weekend, what changes would you all make to the handball rule? Michael, is this is this something you've always dreamed of, being asked to redesign the handball rule? Uh, not really. It does seem to be getting a bit more complex for next season with stuff about t-shirt lines and that. I mean, this is a boring thing to say, but I would change it by just not using VAR. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. T-shirt lines, though, do explain. Uh, well, apparently, apparently the definition of what your hand is is changing from your armpit right. uh, to your t-shirt line, which is controversial because some people wear their t-shirts longer than yeah. other people and the Cameroon side at the start of the 20th century or 21st century didn't have sleeves at all on their shirts so maybe we'll a big disadvantage yeah. we'll see lots of basketball style shirts coming into football yes I suppose I suppose it's an advantage then isn't it it should be said that normally these things are the fault of the handball rule and I think it is a, a bit of a nonsense at the moment the kind of armpit thing I don't think it will necessarily true to form get any less nonsense next season with this t-shirt rule but the the decision today the the Sacco goal I don't think that was the fault of the ham of the handball rule really in that I think VAR just got it wrong it hit him on the shoulder and the shoulder should be fine uh Sacco you know, there's a farcical situation where Mamadou Sacco is pointing to somewhere on his body that he scored with that he thinks is legal and that and yet you hear that we can see the referee mouthing top of the arm no goal I mean, the shoulder is literally at the top of the arm. There's no doubting that. But, I mean, it was a goal. It, it should have been a goal. The other aspect of the handball rule, which has been so controversial and so unpopular this year, has been the automatic disqualification of any goal, which has featured some contact, intentional or otherwise, in the build-up. And I believe I'm right in saying that that has now been changed for next season, but we're still playing to this season's rules. Quick one here from Ahmed Iyerdi who lists these scenarios. Arsenal to win the league in two seasons, Atalanta to make the Champions League final against Barcelona, Sterling to finish top goal scorer this year and next year, and City to get banned for no years by UEFA but fined £50 million. Which one of these will come true? What do you think is the likeliest out of those? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's quite a funny daydream, that. I, I mean, the last one's not improbable, is it? Well, I think I was going to say that I was going to say the, the last one would be the least likely, and that I thought they were think? either going to be found guilty or not guilty. I don't, I don't think there was a halfway house. Um, by the way, if you're curious about Atalanta's prospects and all the teams still involved in the Champions League and Europa League, then do make sure to join us in our Totally Football Show European edition, which uh, which will be with you on Tuesday, in which uh, Raphael Honigstein, James Horncastle, Julian Lorenzo, and Alvaro Romeo will be breaking down teams to watch and everyone's prospects and that kind of thing. Uh, oh, also coming up this week, of course, is the Totally Football League show. Matt, you're in charge. What are you going to be talking about this week? Who's coming up from the Championship? All that kind of thing. 
Yeah, it's uh, Leeds took a giant step towards it on Sunday by beating Swansea, but we've got a, another batch of games on, on Tuesday night, which we'll be reacting to uh, on Wednesday. Show some big ones as well, both ends of the table. Wigan Hull, for example. You've also got Cardiff, Derby and uh, West Brom versus Fulham. And there's been a lot of chat about Brentford this weekend because they're playing really, really well at the moment. I do think that maybe they've left it a little bit late to to get crash the top two but they look big favourites for the um, for the playoffs certainly with the the way that they've been playing and um, we'll also be looking back on that on that League One playoff final which um, Duncan and I will be watching while you're watching Man United and Southampton that's on on Monday night and um, probably say something about Wigan as well because they're nine points clear at the moment they've obviously got this 12 point deduction to come I think we probably all want Wigan to stay up don't we just just because of um, of what's happened there and, and they're doing a really good job of trying to upset the um, Far Eastern betting markets and uh, and other odds. So nine points clear <laughs> with with three three matches to go is it Matt? Yeah, three games. I mean, if they go down, I don't think Paul Cook will be with them next season because he's done such a good job. Um, but I'd really like them to stay up because what's happened is obviously horrendous and, and the form that they're in does not deserve to see them end their season with relegation to League One. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about all of that on Wednesday in the Totally Football League show. But that wraps it up for today's edition of the Totally Football show. Another splendid contribution from Michael Cox and Daniel Story and Matt Davis-Adams, thank you very much to you all for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. And Charlie Eccleshare and Carl Anker too, and producer Charlie, and as always, listener you. Uh, do join us again Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, kind of every day we're here for you. So we'll see you soon for now, though. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.